Hello again, it's me, Wendy Harris, your host on Making Conversations Count. want to just quickly remind you of the values of the show. Looking to bring you business leaders with their industry insights, sharing their honest, real-life stories and that conversation that counted. So it couldn't be closer to those values with today's guest because it's somebody that I met over a decade ago and actually he's the same age as my eldest daughter and I got talking to his mum quite a lot because he was a busy young man back then. He had won the Young Entrepreneurs of the Year Award for chocolate. We all love chocolate, right? And he's gone on to do some really fantastic things. So let's get on because we're making conversations about Young Entrepreneurs Count. What's new, Wendy Wu? Well, I'm going to be spending the next few weeks, I think, sharing with you your reviews from the Brad Sugars episode. It's been fantastic to have your feedback. And of course, the rituals that uh, Brad shared with us, the stretch, whiffle and whoosh, are a great way to start a meeting. If you don't know what I'm talking about, scroll back to episode 55. But now I want to get this young man, Louis, chatting about young entrepreneurship. Monsieur Barnett! <laughs> How are you? I'm absolutely splendid. Do you know, I was just reminiscing, that must have been, so I don't know, 15, 16 years ago when you first came on my radar. It's got to be a long time because I, I remember I was talking to my mom the other day and she sort of remembers you popping up, but we were sort of trying to figure out when it was. But yeah, it was probably 15 years ago or so, as you say. <laughs> and life has been kind to you since, yes, because I almost feel like your mom that I've known, you know, <laughs> been following your career all this time. <laughs> yeah, very kind. Absolutely. I mean, I think it's been a very interesting journey. I think particularly over the last, I suppose, five or six years as well, where making that transition from, you know, building my own business pretty much full time. I'd always, you know, since 2008, I've done consultancy and different projects, but yeah, you know, building your own thing to, to versus building others with them. It's, it's quite a different transition. I'd say I've probably learned almost as much in the last sort of five, six years than I did in some of the years previous to that. So yeah, it's been a very interesting journey. Yeah, for sure. Well, you weren't really far out of school, were you, before you were launched into this sort of madness of being sort of successful? You know, you were selected for, was it the Duke of Edinburgh or Prince's Trust or something like that? I'm, come on, I'm old, an old lady now. <laughs> You've got to help me out. <laughs> yeah, sure. So the, there were a few different ones, but uh, the big one was the Lord Carter Award, which was for the achievement in the food and drink industry, which typically had been given to CEOs of, of quite big companies. And, you know, it was presented at the time by sort of CEO, just thinking of Sainsbury's and, and others. So that was quite cool to know that I was sort of carrying weight in the industry. And, and I think at the time when I was very much the youngest person in a lot of rooms, it, it was good to know that, you know, I was sort of still being able to stand toe to toe with some real industry greats which which was brilliant well young entrepreneur of the year i remember i seem to remember those headlines and how jealous must some of our listeners be that you <laughs> made your mark right with chocolate 
<laughs> I mean, yeah, it's I, been the coolest job ever leaving school. It was, yeah. I mean, I, it's interesting because I think I was very much an entrepreneur by default in the sense that I think a lot of entrepreneurs, you know, I think especially now it's like this this thing, which obviously wasn't around when I was around. It, it was sort of this whole career path where when I started it, I certainly didn't intend to be an entrepreneur. I, I didn't intend to really make any money out of it. It was just, I loved and I was pretty good at eating chocolate. So that sort of helped and fell into obviously making stuff for family and friends. And then it just snowballed and, and it ended up being this big part of my life. But it certainly wasn't a kind of conscious decision of, right, let's start this business and make some money and create a career. And it was like, I left school, obviously, to be home educated. That was, I think, a consideration somewhere in, in the back of my mind that it was like, at some point, I'm going to have to employ myself or or find something. So I think that helped. But obviously, most of it was just, I love doing it. I carried on doing it. And, and it just went from sort of strength to strength and organically grew. How many air miles did you do in those first sort of early months of chocolate because I remember back in the day when I was like hammering the phone for clients all the while and I was working for a design agency that just really wanted to take your brand and put you on the map and you know that was it and it was kind of I was always just talking to your mum because you were on some (laughs) aeroplane somewhere in you know South America or something I was just like how cool is that? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah there was a lot of air miles and I think it was interesting because I think a lot of Brits go through that sort of the disillusion of the island mentality, as I like to sort of say, this idea that obviously I think when you're brought up in Britain, we're quite isolated really in a sense culturally and from a business perspective, you know, whereas I've got sort of friends that live in Switzerland, they speak, you know, seven languages and they're going the in and out chocolate. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> you know, so I, I think as a kind of islander, you get very locked in and then suddenly it's like somebody lifts the lid off it and goes, oh, there's a really big world out there. And actually the UK is this teeny weeny tiny little grain of sand, you know, in in the ocean. So I I think, yeah, that's it's a perspective in a way that I, I wish a lot of British businesses really understood that we've got one of the best brands in the world. You know, brand Britain is so strong and actually there's so much potential for so many more British businesses to sort of get out there into the world, use that as a kind of leverage to actually get their products and services out there. But, you know, I was very lucky to be invited to speak and to do various projects, but obviously also exporting the chocolate. So eight years after we started, we're in 17 countries around the world. So yeah, it was a pretty sort of steep growth curve, but at the same time, probably a little bit of overtrading. And we did have a bit of a shotgun approach where we were being pulled in every different direction and it was great. But at the same time, it meant that some of our markets probably weren't as established as they could be. Mexico ended up being our best because I just fell in love with it. I'm a massive foodie and obviously it's where chocolate came from. And I ended up spending loads of time out then and that then became our sort of best market. But, you know, I kind of wish I could have cloned myself sometimes with all the traveling and stuff. The challenge there though, Louis, isn't it, is that, you know, this next best thing, being pulled in all these different, it's like shiny object syndrome, isn't it? Because it's all new. It's all the challenge that you've always sort of gone, okay, come on, bring it on. Let's just see where this takes me. 
So why not just enjoy the ride? And there will be places that you're not going to do as well as, but it doesn't mean to say that you haven't just smashed it, really. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. And, and I think that learning curve is sometimes really important. And I think that it's almost this expansion and, and reduction that I sort of ended up doing where it's like shiny object syndrome, like you said, you sort of everything to everyone and everywhere. And there's this big wide world out there. I, I just think, I, I suppose I sort of learned then my perspective was, but the business still has to fulfill me and still has to actually yes. give me what I, I need from it rather than just me allowing it to pull me in every different direction. I mean, for the first sort of five years, I didn't have a single holiday. I think, you know, we, we had like a few days off at Christmas, but I mean, a proper dedicated holiday. So little things like that, I think, teach you a lesson that actually, yeah. you know, eventually you, a, a business is supposed to support your lifestyle instead of Not take over around. every aspect yeah. of your life. But of course, um, you were tra- doing all this traveling. So weren't you having yeah. a marvellous time? People yeah. don't understand the difference between, you know, traveling for work and traveling for pleasure. Yeah, yeah, sure. And I, it was nice that I think as we really started to establish some of those markets, I would spend longer because actually I realized that dipping in and out of countries was good fun. But, you know, somebody says, oh, what, what's San Fran like? And you go, well, the conference center's really nice. And the hotel <laughs> was great. And the airport's quite nice and clean. And you have a lot of stories like that, that when you sort of drop in and out, as you say, it's, it's a very different experience. I know the insides of lots of different exhibition centers around the world, but, but not so much the countries they belong to. Whereas then as time went on, I sort of said, actually, I'd, I kind of need to choose a few key markets, spend more time out there. And, you know, obviously Mexico became one of those, but there are a few others as well that you sort of really got to know and, and actually sort of it became fun again, rather than just lots and lots of jet lag back to back. It's realigning that purpose that you started with, isn't it? What was, you know, we're all about conversations on this show. What was it like traveling to different countries? What was it like with the language barriers? Did that hold you back or are you a bit fluent in some languages? No. So, I mean, I I think we're we're incredibly lucky that English is the international language. And and I think especially when you're doing business at a certain level, Everybody seems to speak English and it really puts us to shame. They speak in pound notes, do they? Yeah, you know, this is like, (laughs) I just, I really wish that somehow Britain was more kind of culturally integrated, even with Europe, you know, that we had more focus on foreign languages. And I think you pick up little bits of different languages and I had all kinds of different phrase books in in different countries. I think Spanish, I mean, I'm probably not as practiced anymore, but at one point I could sort of get around and do most things in Spanish and hold a very basic conversation. But yeah, I mean... close to Mexican... Isn't it sort of a Hispanic route? Yeah, it's pretty much identical without the th sounds. So, you know, obviously kind of Castilian Spanish, you get a lot of cerveza kind of sounds, whereas with Mexican, they just kind of cut it out. It's cerveza or, you know, in in Spain, lady's name Rocío would be Rocío in Mexico. So actually, in a way, I think it's easier to speak. There's a lot of kind of colloquial stuff and you get some words that are, almost unlegible initially that are uh, Nahutl or sort of like indigenous words that just look completely, but there's lots of X's and O's and Y's and Z's. But yeah, I mean, it, it is very similar. But as I said, it, it never ceases to amaze me that how good English is internationally. You know, wherever you seem to go in the world, 
you can at least have some basic conversations with most people. And I especially think that even if you learn base phrases and base language, people will try with you. Whereas if you take the approach that, well, I'm English and everyone should speak it. (laughs) The arrogant of English. Yeah. Generally, people lose all of their English words immediately and sort of look at you quizzically. So I I think it is really important to just pick up as much as you can. It's obviously not always as easy to do with certain countries, but yeah, just show a bit of effort. And usually people will try as much as they can to try and converse with you. I mean, most people will learn certain key phrases, won't they? Like, good morning, good afternoon. Two beers, please. <laughs> that sort of thing. I remember I was in Kenya and we were taught by our driver to speak some Swahili, which was just awesome. So it was like jambo, you know, <laughs> go around all these words. Couldn't tell you now what they are, but at the time we felt like we were part of it. And people embrace you for trying. And that's the key thing, isn't it? You know? Yeah, um, yeah, sure. That and the swear words. Everybody always knows what the swear yeah. words are. Yeah, Why is yeah, that? Yeah. yeah, I remember, you know, almost every country, somebody sitting down with me and going, shall I teach you all the swear words? You, well, I mean, okay, but I'd like to kind of know how to order a coffee first. But yeah, okay, that's that's cool. <laughs> I can spot if somebody's saying something horrible about you. Yeah, now. that's absolutely, yeah. <laughs> or if somebody almost runs me over, I've at least got a local response. <laughs> now, I know that chocolate is what started things off for you, but you've diversified since, haven't you, Louis? What are you up to these days? I captured a lot of what I learned in the chocolate business. And, and I think I was very lucky very early on to have some really key mentors and advisors that really drilled into me the importance of branding, marketing and business development as a cyclical approach to, to really frontline revenue and impact. So that there was always a relationship between those three things. And, I, you know, I was always looking at the interrelationship in, in the chocolate business and, and especially overseas as well. You know, you've got even more complexity because suddenly the sort of branding and the consumer psychology becomes even more complicated. So although I learned a lot about a lot of things about business, I think any good entrepreneur ends up juggling about 100 different balls all at once. But I think that there's certain things that you probably gravitate towards as an entrepreneur. And mine within my own business was always those three, you know, it was always our frontline revenue leaders. So I I sort of encapsulated that. And I said 2008 got a, you know, first few proper consultancy projects and started to implement some of that as well as I was doing a lot of kind of food and beverage work as well restaurants, hotels, hospitality. And then as the years went on, I sort of came up with my own strategies, theories and implementation. I've kind of branded it now as the chocolate box methodology and this idea of a really sort of heavily driven consumer psychology approach. How good of you. (laughs) (laughs) So that's what I do now is I, I sort of effectively have distilled all of that stuff that I learned literally from, you know, kitchen table to 17 countries and all of the bits in between and distill it down into this sort of chocolate box methodology, which I work with companies to implement. And, you know, it sort of started out, I did projects with very, very large corporate organizations. You know, I've worked with some of the world's biggest world governments, all sorts of things. But I think I really realized that my passion was very much in the SME space because they were still agile enough to make changes, but also from a consumer psychology at the root of why people 
by what they buy is human interaction. And so a, a lot of brands start to lose that human buying from human thought processes, but also from a consumer who runs a lot of these companies. We don't even know there's this sort of faceless thing that's going on. And so actually, I, I found that it's much easier to accelerate growth with SMEs as well from a sort of buying psychology point of view. So that's that's what I do. So predominantly, it's implementing this sort of frontline revenue, but there's also a lot of stuff back end of getting things in order and organizational sort of capabilities. And I'm a super, super software nerd as well, sort of SaaS products and things. So, you know, a bit of everything, but really I, I help companies grow impact and revenue. That's kind of what I do now. That's got to be so cool to bring all the tools that you've learned to be able to grow a company while still giving it that, because you are a family run business, aren't you? Let's face yeah. it, you've always gone. Well, you'll need to speak to my mom about that one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which I think is so ace. So in terms of your aspirations, and I've got to ask this because you're still only a young man and I am old enough to be your mom. <laughs> I, I need to know what's next. What's the, what is the goal for Nui? So the long-term goal is actually a large piece of land with a cob house on it and uh, a homestead. So that's really my thing. But ultimately, I think, you know, I've spent a long time helping others grow their businesses. I will always continue to do that at some level. I think I'm being a lot more kind of selective now with who I work with. And I think, you know, finding people with the right mindset that willing to change the ways that they do things but also willing to kind of grow and change and, and become innovative. And also, I I don't tend to work, well, I don't work with any companies that money is their sole object and desire. It's it, For me, it's all about larger impact, having a real why and a mission in, in the world. So I think I'll always carry on doing that. But there's a couple of ideas. Uh, well, I, it's more than ideas. Circulating yeah, something. Yeah, th- there's some concepts on the near horizon in, in the next six months that I'm looking to kind of launch. So I do miss being involved in something, you know, day in, day out and really driving something forward. So, so I think that's really what's next is going back into doing something, getting behind the driver's seat and then on the side, still keeping this sort of consultancy, although I really hate that word, but, you know, working yeah. with other companies. I mean, I remember your ethics at Chocolate was fair trade was one of those big things for you. It was about the people that grow it, right? So those are all things that other people realised we should be making more effort in. So I do sort of see that farmstead, you know, grow your own, but grow it, grow the surplus for everybody else and, you know, come and get it from Louis. I kind of totally buy into that idea. I'd love to do that myself. I'm not very good at growing things, though. I can grow stuff, but not the right stuff. (laughs) (laughs) So I think, you know, going back to values and things like that, I know where you're coming from. It'll be that organic, chemical-free, you know, yes. Do you know what? It's not even about brand, that, is it? That's just about being a good human. Yeah, I, I guess so. I mean, I in a way, there there are sort of two categories of people that are involved in sustainability, those that really care or those that want to be seen to care. And actually, in a sense, I don't really mind which one it is, because I think as long as people are doing something, um, you know, yeah, exactly. I just think that for me, you know, I grew up in a little village, you know, not from an incredibly privileged background, you know, when I was really young, 
food was difficult to put on the table. And, you know, there, there were a lot of things that I think informed my decisions that really for me and in my personal life as well, I don't go against my values. I am absolutely black and white when it comes to values. So for me, I think it is just that fulfills such a big thing for me. And don't get me wrong, I'm always probably going to need to be close to a city, but to be able to come home after being in meetings and be in this little haven of British jungle, if you like, and to disappear in, into the garden at the end of the day, that's kind of exactly what I want. I think everybody does. I mean, I have this long-standing conversation with a good friend of mine. I'm going to shout her out. Jenny Proctor. Jenny, she's the self-proclaimed introvert. And she says, Wendy, you are the extroverted extrovert that I, I know. Yeah, we get on like an absolute house on fire. And I say to her, I have so many introverted traits. It's just that you don't see them because when you see me, I'm in performance mode. I don't answer the phone at home. I make everybody else do it. <laughs> I don't want to answer the door to anybody. I make everybody else do it. We all need that space to decompress after something that, because it takes energy at the end of the yeah. day. And I think it's yeah, just cool. about protecting our energy, just the same as in a conversation, this flow. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. I, th- I think, as you say, you know, I mean, obviously the, there's so much research as well with nature bathing, forest bathing. It really does change our sort of biochemical processes. So as you say, you need that space to decompress and to kind of switch off and also come up with new ideas because, you know, let's face it, I can only talk for myself, but I've never come up with my best ideas staring at a laptop for hours and hours and hours on end. It's usually when I'm out for a walk or in the garden or I'm switching off and decompressing. Suddenly, you know, you ponder about something and go, oh, wow, I, I've just come up with another good idea. So, yeah, you, you definitely need that balance. Recharge the battery's time. Allowing that time in nature to allow your mind to wander because that's when it will go, oh, I've just joined the dots upon something. Yeah. I was having a conversation early this morning with the podcast producer, in actual fact, and he said, you know, your idea. And I went, oh, yeah. And he went, well, I've had this idea. And I went, oh, okay. And I went like this. Ah. <laughs> and I had a better idea. And he went, you've got that look again. <laughs> <laughs> And, you know, ideas can come from anywhere so long as you're open to them, you know, and sometimes it's that conversation that, that really helps. Let me tell you about my Power Up programme. An hour and a half with me and accountability later. It's by no means ever going to fix everything. But what it will do is it will allow us to find one area that's a key priority for you to implement straight away into your business and allow you to just see the other areas that you need work on. It's a great stepping stone into the 12-week building block programme. Just book a chin wag, let's have a natter and let's see how I can help you. Got to the bit of the show that I really, 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 really get excited about because I never know what's coming next. So I ask everybody to think about a conversation that created a turning point and what happened next. So, Mike is yours. So yeah, sure. So uh, this was a really difficult one for me because I think there've been lots of conversations that have really made an, an impact, and I think I, I, I want to share 
two, if if that's okay, you know, I'll sort of quick fire them. The, the first one was a conversation that I had with a guy who had worked in some of the top agencies in London and, you know, all the kind of big names worked in New York in, in various agencies as well, come back to the UK and decided to start up a, a sort of marketing and branding agency, only working with sustainable, impactful companies. And it used to be called Host Universal. Unfortunately, it's, it's no more. Robin sort of semi-retired and doing lots of other very cool and interesting things. But he really talked to me about what brand was. And in a way, it's such a simplistic way of explaining it, but it's taken me you know, probably the last 13, 14 years to keep unpacking it and figuring out the depth of the meaning. And so he drew on a whiteboard, two circles. And in one of the circles, it said us. And in the other circle, it said them. Um. And the idea is that obviously most companies end up spending their entire time marketing from us, the business, to them, the customer base. And they use all kinds of different tactics and sales manipulations and discounts and features and USPs and all of that sort of thing. And, and so they're constantly pushing out to the audience. But when they stop, generally sales dry up or they slow down. And then he drew another circle and put we in it and sort of connected up all the dots and said, but this is what brands do. They invite them into a space where they feel a we. They feel that they're actually part of something, you know, and he used the analogy that it's like inviting somebody to go on a trek with you, you know, and you say to them, I want you to come on this life-changing adventure with me. Where are we going? I don't really know somewhere. We'll figure it out. Why are we going? Well, I don't know, just sort of fancy it versus a... I want you to come and climb Snowden with me backwards on our hands because we're raising money for this organization. It's a very different conversation. And so I think that that was the first thing that I said, I'm still unpacking it now and really trying to leverage consumer psychology to understand how to do it in deeper and deeper ways. But it was such a simplistic idea that changed my perspective on really what brand and, and what it was all about. What is brand? And brand really to me is, is personality. It's a very human thing. And so we're inviting people to come into our space. Not everyone's going to like it, just like not everyone's going to like us. You know, good brands are divisive. They push people away and attract others. Yeah. But actually, it's always coming back to this we idea. How are we creating this we? How are we involving them in everything that we actually do? As I said, that completely changed the whole direction of the company. It changed the way that we saw our customers it changed the way that we marketed. It changed everything for us. And one of the key things that we ended up doing was building really long lasting sales relationships. You know, when we sort of closed down a lot of the business, you know, a lot of our customers had been with us 10 plus years and they were incredibly sad to sort of see us, you know, move out the industry. But that was this we, this, you know, this perspective that I got from this guy. Yeah, um, so they, were was, part of, they were part of your journey. So it was yeah. over for them as well. Correct. Yeah, absolutely. And the second conversation, very different one. But again, I think it, it just talks about not judging books by their covers, but also giving people the time. You never know what and who you're talking to and what you're going to learn from them. It was at a networking event in London. The girl that was organizing it, this was, I think, sort of 2007, 2008. The girl that was organizing it was sort of veggie vegan, had organized for all this kind of sloppy sort of Mediterranean-y veggie vegan food. But we've got these really flimsy paper plates 
and I sort of stacked my plate up, turned around and flung stuff all down this guy's suit. Oh, yeah. I was absolutely mortified. Obviously, I offered to have it cleaned and we started to have this conversation. At the time, you know, I'd never been a massive fan of people in the banking industry from my own experience and, and others. And the guy said, oh, you know, gave me his business card and, and it said, you know, Mansour from ING Bank. And I was thinking, oh, no. God, I've got to talk to this guy. And, and then sort of something in me, and, and it's something that various mentors have said to me, is that you know, wise men know they're idiots. You know, Wise men know they know nothing. And actually, you need to see every opportunity that you talk to somebody as, as a learning opportunity. And it popped into my head and I thought, hey, I don't know what this guy's got that he can share that might be great for my journey. So we talked for about 40 minutes. He then said, can I have my business card back? And I, you know, sort of said, well, have I, have I really offended you that badly? And he said, no, I want to give you my real one. Um, and it said president of uh, ING Bank. And um, interestingly that he invited me to an event uh, a couple of weeks later to sort of cater for, we, you know, we did all the chocolates for this private banking event. And on the same night, I met three people which would really change the course of the entire business including a guy called Jamil who the next day had a phone call from somebody he went to uni with who had gone back to Mexico and was asking him to recommend a British chocolatier for a huge chocolate show which then spans the whole Mexico journey for me and then they ended up being our biggest export customer and you know I spent over the years I've probably spent four years sort of in Mexico and in various different times so uh, yeah I think again just one of those conversations that had I not just you know kind of checked myself again and gone you know don't ever have a judgment about somebody or a situation because you never know where it's going to lead and had I just made my exit at that point you know, the business certainly would not have gone in many of the directions that it did. Absolutely. I mean, oh my goodness. I mean, you've just almost used one of my key phrases that I use in my branding, which is you never know where a conversation is going to lead. Yeah. And one of the other things that I always say to people, it's not what you know, it's not who you know, it's what you know about them. Yeah. Because if you actually take the time to get to know these people, you'll be able to help them in ways that you'll never even be able to imagine by just making assumptions. Yeah. Goodness me. And then, you know, aside from like learning a little bit of Spanish, which makes me think of a previous guest who actually teaches globally how to speak languages. So good old Ray came, popped into my head. But serendipity. And, you know, another conversation I've had with a guest, Sarah Townsend, where she just met somebody at the bus stop. And you're absolutely right. You just never, ever know where that next opportunity is coming from. So I always say, Will you recognise it if it knocks on your door? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And or give it time. Hummus on a suit. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And, and as you say, just give it the time because you don't know. I could probably say I've learned actually more from ordinary conversations than I have from some top 100 CEOs that I've met, you know. So I think you never really know, as you say, where that conversation is going to lead and who knows who and there's some incredible statistic that you're only 15 people away from anyone in the world, you know, and, and things like that. You never really know, as you say, and I, I've been very lucky that I've never, ever seeked out a single one of my clients. I've never actually done any direct, let's call it sort of marketing in a sense, because 
my sort of clients have always found me and, and it's been through my network. So I, I think, it, yeah, that there's an incredible importance in human to human connections. And I think, it, you know, especially in the digital age, we do need to remember that as well, because it can be very easy to get just so wrapped up in the digital space without actually considering that we do need to remember to build relationships with people. Because as you say, that's really when the best things in life happen and, and the best genuine connections happen. I couldn't agree more, Louis. And it's just testament, really, that you show up as you and that's who people want to work with. And I have to say, it's the same for me. Yeah, I don't go around cold calling people saying, do you, yeah. <laughs> you need some help? I don't do that. I wouldn't have the time. But you just show up as, as the best person and the best version that you can be. And as long as you're helpful and offer value i think that's the key ingredient yeah yeah 100 percent, absolutely louis two great great conversations there lots and lots of value in that thank you so much for sharing with us no worries if people want to carry on the conversation they can't wait to get to the website and we might not have updated it quickly enough for them where's the best place for them to come and find you the best place to start is is my website louisbarnett.org i do update it Usually every couple of weeks, I'm, I'm pretty good at putting things on, but pretty much any other social media you can think of, I am there. I'm not a massive social media user myself. I, I use it for a lot of clients. I think I get a bit of fatigue sometimes, but at Louis Barnett on almost everything, drop me a message and I will respond. That's brilliant. Thank you so much for joining us today, Louis. I'll no worries. You soon. Yeah, brilliant. Thank you. <laughs> you have it 15 years on and Louis has been working with some of the finest British retailers across 17 countries. If you'd have asked that young man 15 years ago if that was what he saw for his future he'd have probably chuckled. But just goes to show there is no such thing as overnight success and it doesn't matter how long it takes for you to get to where you want to be. It's a really great adventure finding your way there. And talking of adventures, next week's guest has been across the globe with what he does. We're going to be talking to Tom Libbelt. That's what I've noticed. You know, all the blog posts, the advice, the tips, they're all getting it from software companies that are actually just trying to sell you their software. Mm-hmm.